When most folks think of Tex-Mex, we imagine a regional cuisine born of borderlands exchange between Texas and Mexico. We think of guac dip and chips, of cheese smothered enchiladas, and more recently of breakfast tacos stuffed with scrambled eggs and country sausage. But what if I told you that one of the Mexican, and I'm using Mexican kind of air quotes there, one of those Mexican ingredients wasn't introduced by Mexican-American cooks, but instead by an enterprising German immigrant. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Today, we discover how chili powder became a key ingredient in Tex-Mex food. To get the spicy lowdown, join me as we follow Ryan Katz to Texas. A couple of weeks ago, I drove from my house in Austin, Texas, out to an animal adoption center in the suburbs. And when I got there, there was some kind of festival going on in the grass field behind it. Now, I went to pet adorable puppies, but most people, most people were there for the chili. That was really spicy. <laughs> About right there. <laughs> this was a good old-fashioned chili cook-off. Dozens of teams compete. People vote for their favorites. One team takes home the prize for best chili. Now, I love chili, perhaps more than golden retrievers. Hard to believe that's possible, I know. So I abandoned my puppy quest and started on a recipe quest, asking people how they make their chili. My husband's a hunter, and we have a freezer full of oryx meat, which is uh, uh, from the antelope family, uh, sauteed it in olive oil, and then did the traditional chili mixings with it, and then let it sit overnight so it absorbs all the, all the flavors. So it's beef, uh, tons and tons of bacon. Um, after we put the bacon, we put a little bit more bacon. Stumbling upon a cook-off is classic Texas, just like going on a quick trip to run errands and ending up in a three-hour line for barbecue or like eating breakfast tacos for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I tried a chili mixed with chocolate, a Hawaiian chili. Two teams poured beer into their chilies. Thomas Gunchenin led team pack in heat. Um, our whole thing is that we've got kind of a sweet heat going to our chili. Um, we just didn't want to make it too crazy because not everybody likes to be in pain. Thomas grew up in Virginia and the Carolinas. The recipe he made was the one his parents used to make for him as a child. Uh, There's some assorted vegetables, so some bell pepper, some onion. Can't give everything away. (laughs) Why not? Well, because then everybody else could do it. The competition was fierce. Winner of the past two years was Team Bowls of Steel. They really stood out from the crowd because they were wearing metal mixing bowls on their heads. Christy Carpenter was their cook. We add a lot of beef broth. Something that people find maybe a little strange is cinnamon. Now, traditionally, Texas chili does not have beans in it, just meat. Do you put beans in it? Yeah, we actually do. We put uh, kidney beans. I know a lot of people down here in Texas don't like beans in their chili, but we think it's pretty good. Most teams used a blend of spices. Cayenne pepper, some paprika, some white pepper. Cayenne, cumin. Cayenne, cumin, salt, pepper, onion powder. Kind of everything that was in the refrigerator, yeah, went in there. (laughs) But the one ingredient that almost everyone used was chili powder. Fritz Stegman was from Team Criminal Chili. 
It's the spice that you use the most, right? Like any given chili, you're going to have at least a you know, quarter cup, half a cup of chili powder just because that gives it the chili flavor. We'll come back to the winner of the cook-off at the end of the story. But after talking to so many chili cooks, I wondered about the virtues of using chili peppers instead of chili powder. I was always raised that the fresher, the better. And what is chili powder anyway? To find out, I called up Sarah Lohman. Chili powder, uh, if we're just talking the technical definition, it is about 80% ground chilies, and the other 20% is usually Mexican oregano, garlic, cumin. Lohman is the author of Eight Flavors, the untold story of American cuisine. And Lohman says part of the reason why chili powder became popular might be because it can be slightly addictive. When we eat something spicy, it releases endorphins in our brain. It's a calming chemical. When it thinks we're in trouble, it's what says it's going to be okay. And endorphins feel good. So when we do something that our brain perceives of as dangerous, like eat a hot chili, but then we're not actually hurt afterwards, we want to repeat the experience. Sarah Lohman got me thinking about how we perceive of certain foods as authentic or inauthentic and how chili and chili powder show how modern innovations can subvert more traditional cuisines. The area now known as Texas was first colonized by Spain. Next, Mexico claimed it. And then the United States won Texas during the Mexican-American War of 1848. Yeah, and I love this part of the story, too, because it deals with what I think we feel like is a very modern concept, tourism. After the Mexican-American War, people were really excited about a new part of the United States. In the 1880s, the newly built railroad transported people from all over the country to San Antonio. Deep within my heart lies a melody, a song of old San Antonio. There were local street food vendors that, before the wave of tourism, had fed the soldiers that were coming in and out of San Antonio. They were families, and it was usually that, like, grandma and grandpa made the food during the day, and it was one of their unmarried daughters that would be on the market with the family selling the food. And the young women who were put forward as the stars of the show, they were known as the Chili Queens. They were called the Chili Queens because they sold a dish called chili con carne. It was a meat stew combined with various chili peppers, primarily ancho chilies. After you had maybe gone out and had a couple beers, you would go and get some chili con carne or tamales or atole. Um, And uh, it was the thing to do. You went to San Antonio, you went and saw the Alamo, and then the next thing you should do is go try some chili. At the same time as tourists from all around the country poured into central Texas, visitors from another country entirely were settling there. This place is called Friesenhaus, German food and beer. There's uh, various cafes, Krauss Cafe and Beer Garden, all proudly proclaiming German heritage here in New Braunfels. New Braunfels, Texas is 30 miles north of San Antonio. Three Bavarian restaurants serve bratwurst there. There's a year-round beer garden. Instead of welcome, signs on the shops say Willkommen. I meet Ross Fortune at his restaurant, the Phoenix Saloon. Hi, I'm Ryan. Are you Ross? Uh, yes. Hi, nice to meet you. Pleased to meet you. Founded in 1871, the saloon was supposedly the first bar in Texas to serve women. 
It housed an alligator pit in the backyard. And a parrot perched at the exit that asked customers when they left, have you paid your bill yet, in German. But the real reason I'm here is because at the back of the saloon sat a cafe run by a German immigrant named William Gebhardt. If you could show me like where Gebhardt's cafe was and that kind of thing. That yeah, I, sort of over there. I guess if we go out the side door, you can see clearer from there. Ross takes me around to the side of the building. This, to the best of our knowledge, was where the, the, the cafe entrance was. The legend goes that on the weekends, William Gebhardt joined the throngs of tourists to San Antonio. He would go see the chili queens and admired their chili con carne so much that he decided to adapt their recipe back at his cafe. Quickly, chili con carne became the most popular dish on the menu. Today, the Phoenix Saloon still serves the recipe that he developed to mimic the chili queens. But here, Gebhardt ran into a problem. He relied on ancho chilies, dried poblano peppers, and he imported them from Mexico. Gebhardt tried to import them by the wagon load, but they would often become infected with insects or mold. So Gebhardt came up with the idea of grinding ancho chilies and making a powder out of it. This is Rob Walsh. He's a founder of Foodways Texas and the author of the Chili Cookbook. He's also a bit of a Gebhardt obsessive. He put ancho chilies into his oven at home, and then when he got them really dried out, he put them in a hand-cranked coffee mill. Nearly every German household in Texas had one of these European hand-cranked coffee mills. After it reached a powder, Gebhardt added cumin, Mexican oregano, and pepper. He started out small, put the powder into glass bottles, and sold a few at a time in the streets of San Antonio. But it quickly grew popular, and he opened a factory in 1896, calling his invention Gebhardt's Eagle Chili Powder. The incredible thing about chili powder was that now, for the first time, you had this product that made it possible to make chili, you know, anywhere in the country. Now chili was portable. Tourists visiting Texas could buy some and take it home with them. And chili popped up in parlors around the country. Lindy's Chili in Chicago, Ben's Chili Bowl in Washington, D.C. Above all, the powder made cooking chili easy. All the seasonings were in this one little bottle. Plus, it was cheap. No more going to the trouble of buying chili peppers from Mexico, transporting them to Texas or Chicago or D.C., and storing them until you were ready to cook. Even by the turn of the century, Rob Walsh says, restaurants in Texas started mixing American products with heavily processed cheese and Mexican dishes like enchiladas. A new regional cuisine flowered, enabled by chili powder made with Mexican ingredients by a German immigrant to Texas. Well, you know, it was Gebhardt chili powder that set the taste of Tex-Mex. It created that Tex-Mex flavor profile um, that we are so used to in the United States. In addition to his writing, Walsh also works as a partner in a Houston restaurant, El Real Tex-Mex. El Real is housed in a former movie theater, a huge neon marquee out front, and serves classic Tex-Mex dishes, you know, fajitas, enchiladas, nachos, and they make chili powder in-house, just like Gebhardt used to do. In the industrial-sized kitchen, prep cooks run around getting ready for the day. And to make the chili powder, they throw the ancho chilies in the oven and then run them through a coffee grinder. The manager of El Real is Justin Saunders. 
He says most of the chili powder they make actually goes into a sauce that served as a topping, chili gravy. I really describe chili gravy as like the mother sauce of Tex-Mex. So it, it's basically just like, like making a gravy at the house, but it's just heavily seasoned with chili powder. So how much of our chili powder do you think ends up in cheese enchiladas? <laughs> About 75% of it. About 75% of it, yeah, really. Because we make the chili powder, we make the chili and the chili gravy, and the number one thing people are eating that on are cheese enchiladas. So. Walsh takes me upstairs, where El Real displays two glass cabinets lined with Tex-Mex memorabilia. He pulls out a cookbook. Uh, this one is a Gebhardt home cookery book. Now, by this time, they've got um, Gebhardt canned products, like canned chili con carne, canned chili hot dog sauce, barbecue sauce, deviled sandwich spread, all with uh, Gebhardt's Eagle brand chili powder. This is a Gebhardt's advertisement. Gebhardt's Eagle chili powder is the genuine Mexican chili powder made by a secret formula from Mexican ancho chili peppers with certain rare spices added. And this, this is the moment when I start to cringe. Be sure to get Gebhardt's if you want the genuine Mexican chili powder. Of course, there was no chili powder in Mexico. It was a completely Texas invention. Up until now, I've reported a fairly typical story. An inventor tinkers in the back of his shop and comes up with an idea that changes the world. Gebhardt changed the food world. He adapted a dish made by San Antonio street vendors, tweaked it, and sold it as authentic to American consumers, and made a lot of money. And it was the marketing that drove Gebhardt's early successes. When chili powder first hit the market, people didn't really know how to use it, so Gebhardt told them. It takes time to make a real good chili, so Gebhardt's chili is slow simmer, deep down goodness, locked in flavor, it's slow simmer Gebhardt's chili. Rob Walsh says Mexican restaurateurs disavowed chili and chili powder. It was really a point of pride with the Mexicans that chili con carne was not Mexican food. So yeah, it is in a part selling this idea of authenticity. Sarah Lohman says because Gebhardt was German, he was not beholden to Mexican ideas of authenticity. He wasn't a part of that mother culture, of Mexican culture. So his version of chili wasn't based in tradition. So he didn't felt a need to make it a certain way. He changed it and turned it into something else. In fact, Gebhardt drew on his European ancestry when making chili powder. The blend was similar to Hungarian paprika, a chili pepper spice, which went into goulash, which was a meat stew kind of similar to chili. So to recap, we have a German immigrant marketing a Mexican-influenced ingredient that reminded him of a dish with likely origins in Hungary. In a way, to me, that's one of the most American things that you can think of all of these different cultures that are coming together to create this thing which has tradition, but in a way is now untethered from what it was. For Lohman, this is cultural assimilation, a time-honored American ideal. Like he wasn't thinking about it. Like he was making a food that people around him liked to eat and he invented a new way to do it and then he sold it. And a hundred years ago, we weren't really thinking very hard about this idea of cultural appropriation. Rob Walsh again. I don't think Gebhardt was doing much in the way of focus group testing, but I think he figured out that what people were looking for was quote unquote Mexican food. 
Gebhardt didn't start out lying, you know, but over the course of time, his advertising claim, authentic Mexican, um, became, you know, viewed as just the worst sort of cultural appropriation and, you know, cheating, you know, but, um, it's not what he set out to do. He thought it was authentic Mexican. So, uh, you know, the idea that Tex-Mex is not authentic Mexican is, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, now, you know, you look at it and you say, well, no, it's authentic Tex-Mex. Of course, we judge the past by today's standards all the time. Gebhardt was taking from a different culture, simplifying it, packaging it, and making a fortune. What harm could there be in that? We find out after the break. But first, here's that donor music. Today, Whole Foods Market introduces us to David Tyka Coddington, a former aquaculture researcher at Auburn University. In 2001, he established Green Prairie Aquaculture with colleague Rude Schmittu and became a saltwater shrimp farmer in Utah, Alabama. We're located about 150 miles inland from the Gulf of Mexico, but we have salty water in this area. The water has become mineralized over the eons. It's not much good for anything else. But it is okay if amended with the proper ions. It's very good for saltwater shrimp. The flavor on our shrimp is, is something that we brag about because it's a little bit different from a marine shrimp. They have a sweeter flavor. Our shrimp also always have a firm bite to them. It's never soft like some shrimp might be. When you next visit Whole Foods, look for Green Prairie Aquaculture Shrimp in the Seafood Department. Your purchase supports the promise of innovative aquaculture in the South, just as Whole Foods Market supports this podcast. Eat real food from Whole Foods Market. Gebhardt's chili powder quickly spread all across the country. People added chili to spaghetti. They topped hot dogs with chili. They dunked french fries in chili. And as Gebhardt's empire grew, the chili queens and other street vendors in San Antonio were displaced, along with the food they sold. The Jungle, published in 1906 by Upton Sinclair, highlighted the diseased and harsh working conditions of the meatpacking industry. The American food system started to industrialize, and issues of cleanliness and transparency became deeply important in the progressive era. Words like clean, healthy, these are being used as buzzwords the same way that, like, organic is being used right now. Sarah Lohman again. Gebhardt took photos of their factories. They released press that said things like sanitary and clean and healthy with these images of these, like, gleaming metal meat grinders and tubs and these, you know, perfectly white um, aproned employees that just look meticulously clean. The city of San Antonio forced the chili stands to pay for costly licenses and follow health codes. By the 1940s, most of the street vendors had left the plazas. And many of them went to work on the line canning chili in the very Gebhardt factories that had competed with them for business. I decided to meet up with Adon Medrano, 
the author of a book called Truly Texas Mexican. I figured he'd be a good person to weigh in on chili powder. Hi, Ryan. Come in. How are you? I met Medrano at his test kitchen in Houston. He was trying out recipes for his new cookbook. This is my kitchen. Wow. As Medrano and I sit down to talk, he makes one thing very clear from the outset. Tex-Mex, it's a style of cooking that uh, gravitates towards deep frying and putting cheese on lots of things, having the use of chile for uh, heat. The the food that you get at a Tex-Mex restaurant, you would not find cooked in any Mexican-American homes. And so I make the distinction simply because it's there. There really is no one type of Mexican food. There's the cochinita pibil of Yucatan, moles from Oaxaca, pozole of Sinaloa. Even though we all use chiles, we use them differently. And spoiler alert, chili powder is not a traditional food. We don't use chili powder. I don't use chili powder. I never use any powdered commercial product. Um, when I when I first asked you that over the phone, you said, what do you mean? I'm offended by that. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> It's an easy, yeah, it's an easy retort because we don't do it. These are the chiles. Instead of using a powder, Medrano makes a chili paste. He gets up and grabs six peppers, three ancho and three guajillo. The anchos are uh, long and uh, red and they're dried. He cuts out the seeds and then boils them. From that boiling, which rehydrates them, we will make the chile paste, chile puree, which is the way we do it. After about 10 minutes, Medrano blends the peppers into a paste. He then lightly fries the paste on the stove while he takes out a mortar and pestle made out of rock. Uh, We use a molcajete, the mortar. Uh, It is where disparate ingredients like garlic, pepper, and cumin come together. But through the blending and crushing, and we find a harmony, and it becomes very emblematic of who we are. Medrano takes the garlic, pepper, cumin, and grinds it up. A few minutes later, he adds it to the chili puree, which we mix with sautéed onion and cactus. Se parte, es una huella. When you scrape the bottom of the pan with a spatula, the ribbon remains open so that you can see the bottom of the pan. When you can have that effect, then your chile is cooked. That's when it's ready. You see, it it takes a while for it to come together. Tex-Mex, just like the phrase itself, is short, simple, and easy. You dump some chili powder on meat, call it a day. With the chili paste, you boil the peppers, then mash them up, then add the traditional flavors. It takes more time. That doesn't make one better than the other. They're just different. Saying that one thing is important is not to thereby say that something else is unimportant. So, um, I would like for us to eat. We can put everything aside. Okay. Not bad. Okay. As we eat, Medrano tells me the chili paste he just made he uses to make chili. But not chili con carne, carne con chile. The difference is the powder versus the paste. Chili con carne is Tex-Mex, uses powder. Carne con chile is more traditional, with the paste. That's it, yes. But the next part of our conversation kind of surprised me. Medrano is not a strict traditionalist. Turns out quite the opposite. There are fascist culinarians. 
And I have no patience with people like that. I wasn't sure what he meant, so I asked him to clarify. In response, Medrano said that he grew up poor. His family would move around during the summer, working on farms in the Midwest. Often, they'd only have time to eat bologna sandwiches on the side of the road. But when you're in that situation, I don't give a darn if it's traditional. I just want to feed my family, and I want them to be happy, and I want it to be beautiful. And if I have ingredients that are not quote-unquote traditional or this or that, I don't care. Medrano says many Mexican-American families today use chili powder because that's what's affordable to them. But often that ability to adapt can translate as an ability to innovate. Every single really good chef whom I know who is Latino or Latina will say that they do not abide by a uh, authentic this or that. Remember that any classic dish was not classic until it was first new. Gebhardt, back in the 1890s, didn't have a lock on innovation. Today, Medrano isn't trying to halt the production of chili powder. He just wants us to recognize dishes made with chili powder for what they are, Tex-Mex. But Medrano draws the line when certain foods get erased. Gorditas de nopalitos, corn patties with cactus, tortas de camarón molido, powdered shrimp cakes, almejas con tequila, grilled clams and tequila broth. And unfortunately, in the public imagination, our homestyle cooking doesn't exist. And uh, I think it should. Across the nation, Tex-Mex dominates today. And so do Tex-Mex dishes, like chili con carne and cheese enchiladas, dishes built on chili powder. Whether Gebhardt intended it or not, he created a product that drove that erasure. Now, at the beginning, I said I wouldn't end the story without telling you who won the chili cook-off. There was Thomas with Team Pack and Heat's Sweet Chili. There's, there's one secret ingredient that nobody can quite pinpoint. There was John, who dumped bacon and beer into his chili. We have this really great website we use, uh, Google. And I can never forget Team Bowls of Steel, who wore metal mixing bowls on their heads. Can everybody hear me? <laughs> All the teams gather in the middle of the grassy field, and the big moment arrives. Okay, it's the moment our chili chefs have been waiting for. Time to announce the Chili Champs 2017. Cedar Park Overhead Doors, Rick and Janet. Rick and Janet Benight came in first. Oh, they're coming back for coming seconds. Back for seconds. They really liked it, and then the people were coming, and they said, we heard we needed to come try your chili, so. Rick and Janet did something no other team I talked to did. They used ancho chilies rather than chili powder. It's an old recipe we use, so. Use just a little bit of ancho chilies and let it simmer for about two and a half hours and put some cayenne and some chili pepper in it to let it just sit for a while. The winning recipe used ancho chili peppers, almost like a Don Medrano would. When we dance together, my world's in disguise. It's a fairyland tale that's come true And when you look at me With those stars in your eyes I could waltz across Texas with you Ryan Katz is a freelance writer and radio journalist based in Austin, Texas. You can find more of Ryan's work by visiting his website, 
RyanGordonCats.com. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. To hear more music from this episode, follow the links to our website, southernfoodways.org. In your charms, and I could waltz across Texas with you. Our intern is Robin Miniter. If you would like to learn more about the history of chili powder and Tex-Mex, you'll also find links at southernfoodways.org. Coming up, a taste of the next gravy episode. But first, here's that donor music. Mark your calendars for April 20th through the 23rd. Those are the dates for Indigrets, a film and culture festival for DIY media makers in Columbia, South Carolina. This year's theme is Visiones. The festival will explore the ways that the Latino population in South Carolina and the larger American South influences the region's culture. Lamb Chop and Curtis Harding will perform at the opening night block party, and Saturday's food truck paranda will showcase Latin American fare. Visit IndieGrits.com to see the full schedule of events and to purchase tickets. Next time on Gravy, Jews and Gentiles join hands over corned beef sandwiches in the Mississippi Delta. We meet members of the Hebrew Union Congregation in Greenville, and we find out if they can keep a 130-year-old lunchtime tradition alive. That's next time on Gravy. You're listening to Gravy. I'm John T. Edge for the Southern Foodways Alliance. As you go about your day, please remember, make cornbread, make queso, make a margarita, not war. <laughs>